Hello and welcome to this week's edition of History Now. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Margaret Ward here. Margaret is the author of Unmanageable Revolutionaries, Women and Irish Nationalism, and Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, Suffragette and Sinn Féinor. So Margaret, your area of research on the suffrage movement in Ireland, uh, can you tell us the origins of that? And I know sort of late on around the Home Rule period, there was, uh, they adopted some different tactics. Can you just give us a bit of a background on the movement and, you know, when it became more militant? Okay, there's quite a lot to put in there because, you know, we do start off very similar to the British movement, but of course, um, British and Irish women had the same goal, which was votes for women in a Westminster Parliament, which was therefore the common objective was to persuade um, members of the political party sitting in Westminster to support uh, any votes for women bill that might be going through. So it really starts in the 1860s when John Stuart Mill tries to get um, a votes for women bill passed and there's a big petition goes through and some um, early Irish names are included on that and as time goes on more and more women start adding their names. So for example we have Isabella Todd who's an Ulster Scott who sets up the first women's suffrage society in Ireland and it's in the north of Ireland um, and then she organises a, a women's suffrage tour in 1873 that starts in Belfast, goes up the northeast, Derry, Coleraine, goes to Armagh and it goes down to Dublin and, and when she goes to Dublin she meets Anna and Thomas Haslam, a Quaker couple and they then set up their own organisation in Dublin, which later on becomes the Irish Women's Suffrage and Local Government Association. And that's basically the organisation in the south of Ireland that most people start with and cut their teeth on, even if they go on to a more militant organisation later. So at the very beginning, there's a common objective and similarity in terms of membership, it's middle and upper class women, educated women, and by and large Protestant women as well. And this changes when you have uh, a new generation of Catholic women who are now um, eligible for higher education. So, for example, Eva Gore Booth, uh, Constance Markovich's sister, she lives in Manchester with a woman called Esther Roper. And Esther Roper is very active in organising women's petitions um, for suffrage and getting names on them. And Hannah Sheehy, when she's an undergraduate, is asked to sign one of these petitions that has been got up by Esther Roper, but Anna Haslam is the one asking women to sign. And Hannah says she only realised at that moment that her status as a woman was worse than being a prisoner or a lunatic because she was a woman she could never vote. And she said she became a conscious suffragist from that moment on. So we can see a new generation starting to come. So basically, if you think of the, the differences in population, there were about three thousand active suffragists in the whole of Ireland and in the north um, about 20 smaller suffrage groups and about a thousand members so it was pretty substantial as a movement. Yeah and in Britain there's you know a, a more militant strand appears when does that first appear in Ireland? Right well because we've had the decades of um, petitions, of polite requests, of trying to influence the influential, 
uh, and, and nothing happens. Finally, in England, in Manchester, the Pankhursts in 1903 set up the Women's Social and Political Union as a militant organisation, and its motto is deeds, not words. And Hannah says that she and her friends, who are members of the Irish Women's Suffrage and Local Government Association, they see that happening, and she says it strikes a response of chord in Irish feminist breasts, and they decide that they might in the future also need a militant organisation. So it's five years later that the Irish Women's Franchise League finally comes into being and Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, as she now is, having married Frank Skeffington, and her friend Margaret Cousins are the founders of this and they go and explain to Anna Haslam why they've organised this. And one of the reasons is that it looks more and more likely that home rule might be granted to Ireland in the not too distant future. And if that's the case, Irish women want to make sure that they're citizens of a home rule Ireland. And as they say, as Margaret Cousins says, we wanted to make sure that we were women in an independent Ireland and we needed our own organisation that could devise its own strategy for getting to that end. Yeah. The 1st of June, 1912. Why is that an important date? Okay, so the notion of home rule is there for a while. By 1910, the Irish Parliamentary Party is, is, is occupying a really important position in Westminster. The Liberal government has been returned to power, but it's a minority government and the Irish party is holding the balance of power. John Redmond, the leader of it, says that the condition of that is that the uh, government will pass a Home Rule Bill for Ireland. Okay, so women are now saying if Home Rule is going to be passed, we have to be citizens. And actually this unites women. Unionist women are saying the same, that they're saying we don't want Home Rule for Ireland, but if Home Rule comes about, then women as a principle have to be part of it. So it, it, that, that principle of citizenship and equality united women from different sides of the spectrum. So on the 1st of June 1912, a really significant meeting was held in Dublin. 19 women's organisations took part, not only small suffrage groups, but Anini Naheran, the Irish Women Workers Union, Sinn Féin. Women came together on a great principle that if there was going to be home rule, women ought to be part of it. And as they said, unionists and nationalists came together and they had a petition which they then sent to the government and to all members of political leaders of political parties and it got ignored. And it was from after that they decided, right, everything had been done. It was time for militancy in Ireland. And so on the 13th of June, um, eight members of the Irish Women's Franchise League took different um, buildings connected with uh, government, um, the post office, the custom house, and most famously Dublin Castle, the seat of British rule in Ireland, and they went and smashed windows. And those were the first suffrage prisoners in Ireland. And so one of those in, in relation to Dublin Castle was Hannah Shee Scaffington, who um, your book you've written a book on. Can you tell us about her motives? Or were there any personal motives? And I'm really interested in the, her choice of target in Dublin Castle. She said that she asked for Dublin Castle mm. because she said she wanted to right the many wrongs. Um, and so it was seen as, as, as this kind of oppressive centre 
of, of British rule over Ireland over the centuries. So she and Margaret Murphy went there about four or five in the morning uh, to smash windows. I think she managed to smash about 19 panes before she was arrested. And because she was left-handed, they grabbed her by the right at first. So she was able, she said, to get a few more panes in. And then they were arrested. But her, her, her granddaughter, Michelin, um, last year, in order to commemorate the first militant action in Ireland, petitioned um, Dublin uh, City Council to put up a plaque and they said, and the Lord Mayor said, why don't you also, as well as we will put up a plaque, reenact what had happened? So Michelin, dressed like her mother, uh, grandmother, and who looks, she looks very like her grandmother, reenacted it and reenacted the the arrest. And and watching that and looking at the the huge edifice of Dublin Castle and those thick walls and what it would have been like, it would have been very heavily um, policed at that time. How, how moving it was that women were so um, enraged by, by their second-class status that they resorted to such measures. It wasn't something that one would likely take. Mm. Um, she didn't get as... Um, four of the women got six-month imprisonment. Um, she didn't get as much because she hadn't managed to smash as many windows. But the women who went to the GPO and the customs house said that the uh, Dublin dockers kept a lookout for them um, to tell, warn them when the police were coming, so they were able to smash a lot more windows. And I th always think it's really interesting that we talk about the GPO um, in Easter 1916, but actually um, Irish feminists attacked the GPO four years previously in order to assert their rights to citizenship. So you just touched on it briefly in one of the previous responses about the number of different organisations. Um, right throughout the island of Ireland, were, were there any, you know, such targets in the north as like Hannashi East Gaffington took out in, in Dublin? Yes, uh, the north is slightly different. The north is always mm. different, but it starts off pretty similar. The, the Isabella Todd organisation changes its name in 1909, so it's now called the Irish Women's Suffrage Society, and they had their offices in Donegal Place. Um, in November 1912, uh, Philip Snowden, a Labour MP, had passed a, had put forward an amendment to the Home Rule Bill um, to say that women should be given the vote in Home Rule Ireland, and that was defeated, and mainly defeated by the, the votes of the Irish Party. So that was the first militant action and protest on that um, in Belfast. They smashed the windows of the post office that used to be behind City Hall, where, where Red Square is mm -hmm. now, that, that area. They, they cut telephone wires and they attacked um, letterboxes by putting in ink, etc. So it was very much um, government targets. Yeah. And that's what distinguishes, I think, the, the Irish feminists to what happens across the water with the WSPU, because Ireland kept um, government targets or political parties and they didn't attack private property. Um, the WSPU was different. They attacked private property, um, I think, through frustration, you know, the smashing the big plate glass windows of Oxford Street, for example. What they wanted to do was make life difficult for the rich and powerful, hoping that then they would put pressure on that the vote would be passed. So when the WSPU um, sets up an Ulster Centre, the targets change very much, and when militancy really comes to the north, they, they um, attack male uh, 
kind of areas of leisure pursuits and also the churches which they're seen as part of the establishment so then you've got Newtonard's race stand or golf courses or Bellevue tea houses as well as famously Lisbon Cathedral mm -hmm. or Bishop Orlando's mansion etc. Yeah you talked about Snowden's amendment was defeated mainly due to the Irish Parliamentary Party there's a really famous cartoon by Ernest Kavanagh of yeah. Redmond talking about the new liberator um, and his opposition to universal suffrage for women. We most associate Redmond with the, the Home Rule uh, movement and the, the Irish Volunteers. Do you think that's overshadowed his legacy in terms of blocking the votes for women? Well, I have to say all main party leaders were against votes mm. for women, you know, Asquith was an anti-suffragist, but Redmond certainly was. And John Dillon, his second in command, said it would be the ruin of Western mm. civilization if women got the vote. It would attack the, you know, the natural order, the headship of man and the family, etc. Um, so that that cartoon has Redmond standing on the prostrate body of a suffragette and holding, you know, big order, you know, no equality here, or no votes for women by order of the new liberator. So it was it's very sarcastic. Uh, double standard liberating Ireland but not liberating women and actually um, keeping them in subjection and one of the reasons I mean he was challenged a lot and, and women went in deputation to him all the time was that he just said um, it would take up too much time parliamentary time if they were going to put forward a, a bill for votes for women it would eat into the time that the home rule bill would be taking. So that was the reason he gave, which makes it sound kind of rational and mm. parliamentary, but the reality is he never supported votes for women. Yeah. Ernest Gavinick came from a very sort of radical family, including his sister, Maeve, and what, what uh, activities was she involved in? Or well, well, both of them were very much involved in Liberty Hall, and in fact, you know, tragically, Ernest was shot dead on the steps of Liberty mm. Hall at the beginning of the rising. But Maeve was, was active with women like Rosie Hackard, Helena Maloney and all of those, but she was also a poet, uh, a very fine poet, and, and Hannah Shee Skeffington would have called her the poetess of the revolution. And she wrote a, a wonderful poem to commemorate the, the murder of Frank Skeffington that was published in The Irish Citizen after 1916. Yeah. You've mentioned it as well, all main political parties were against votes for women. But is there anything that, you know, in terms of the Ulster Unionist Party, anything of note that suffragists against the Ulster Unionist Party? How, do, how did that sort of work out, especially when, it came, when the Home Rule Bill was at its height? Well, the Ulster Women's Unionist Council, which had been formed in 1911, was in fact the, the biggest women's organisation in the whole of Ireland. And, and when... Um, the Ulster Unionists organised the covenant against home rule. Women, they didn't let women sign that because women weren't citizens, but women organised a separate declaration. In fact, more women signed the declaration, over 231,000, more than men signed the covenant. At the same time, um, Ulster suffragists like, for example, Elizabeth Priestley McCracken, who did a lot, who's an author, but she did a lot of interceding with the Ulster Unionists, trying to get them to support votes for women. She said of the Unionist Women's Council that they had the self-denying ordinance, as she put it, that they never once raised anything in favour of women. I mean, their, their, their whole raison d'etre was to defend the union rather than promote women 
which, which is a distinction. So the Ulster Unionists weren't seen as being pro-women and Carson was an anti-suffragist, mm -hmm. but Sir James Craig supported suffrage. And when, when they started to mobilise against home rule, they announced that there would be a provisional government set up if home rule passed and Ulster would be outside of it. And then it was announced that women would get the vote in this provisional government. And that took everyone by surprise in Ireland, nationalists and unionists, because unions hadn't been pro-suffrage. Um, and they all congratulated them, saying, you know, again, it was about the principle of citizenship and equality. They didn't want Ulster to leave. Um, but if it was going to, they, they, they you know, congratulated them on, on recognising they also needed women to be part of this. But then when Carson was challenged to make sure that he was behind it, he said, no, he wasn't. And so the WSPU in England started to um, try and have deputations to Carson to get him to change his mind. And Dorothy Evans became the organiser they sent over to Belfast to set up the Ulster Centre with two other women. So three of them, as paid organisers, tried to challenge the Ulster Unionists when they said no woman would not be given the vote in a provisional government. This was worse than never having promised it. So the WSPU declared war on Ulster Unionism after that, and it was a war. The first thing they did was burn down Abbeyland's mansion, which um, the grounds of which um, had been where the UVF had done all its um, training. And that's, it cost about 200,000, which I looked up, the equivalent today is about two million pounds. So this is serious arson. And they continued like that throughout 1914, right up to the outbreak of the First World War. Yeah. So when, you know, the home rule crisis hits its peak, just before the First World War, how, how did that affect the, the suffrage movement, given that there were so, you know, a number of different groups, some unionist, nationalist? It's very difficult. It's very difficult for nationalist feminists because, you know, it's that, that age-old problem, what do you put forward uh, or what do you give priority to? Is it the nation or is it women? You know, is it women's liberation before national liberation? You know, what do you do? So there were um, women like, for example, Mary McSweeney, who had been a member of the Munster Women's Franchise League. But once the Home Rule crisis came about, her priority then was the nation. Mm. Um, and she started to engage in, in debate in the Irish citizen. So did women like Rosamond Jacob, because they felt that, um, or Mary Hayden said, well, we know eventually that votes for women will come about. We know that that will happen, but we don't know if we'd ever have this chance of home rule again. This is an historic moment, and we've got to plump for that first. Whereas you had other women saying, no, women have been let down over centuries by men. We have to keep going now if we don't have this. The other thing was that the clauses in the Home Rule Bill meant that for the first three years, the constitutional arrangements couldn't be changed. So what women were saying was, you're saying to us that we would have a free Ireland and for three years men would run it and you're telling us that after three years that they're going to give us the vote. We can't believe those promises. If we don't get it actually included now, we feel it never will be included. So you can see how difficult those decisions must have been to take. Yeah, yeah and then, of course, when the First World War comes along. Some suffragettes were um, anti-war and took a very anti-war stance. Can you tell us about that? And then if there were, you know, 
on the other hand, people who were uh, not pro-war, but you know, pro-defence uh, of the empire. I would say there were three different reactions to the First World War. The first unambiguous one is the, the heading in the Irish Citizen, Votes for Women, Damn Your War. And it's, you know, a strictly pacifist view. It sees the war as a war of imperialist powers um, and it's completely against it. Hannah Sheehy Skeffington has a really impassioned article in the Irish Citizen talking about feminists now being told that, that they'll have to roll up the map uh, of suffrage as um, the war happens and what she urges women is not to take part in war relief work. She said it's not for women to um, cleanse the stench of the abattoir because if you engage in war work you're prolonging the war you know and that caused huge furore just the, 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 the language that she used. You had some women who didn't support the war exactly, but felt that if it was going on, they needed to support the kind of consequences of war. So you had, for example, Lady Aberdeen, the, the wife of the Lord Lieutenant, set up a suffrage relief committee, and she invited leading uh, suffragists onto that. And so they would organise, um, for example, to make sure that women who were engaged in war work were given you know, the proper kind of conditions when Belgian refugees were sent over to Ireland, they helped to coordinate relief work for them. And, and really importantly, for example, there was a suffrage um, hospital in Serbia um, and they fundraised for that. Lots of fundraising meetings happened in, in Belfast to support Dr Elsie Inglis and the suffragists who'd set up this field hospital. So that was kind of supporting the war effort, but not necessarily the war. And then you had the women, for example, Lady Londonderry, who was a, a leading unionist figure. She sets up the Women's Legion to enable women to be part of the war effort. And part of that becomes the first um, women being able to actually join the army, but the Women's Land Army comes out of the Women's Legion. So women take part in different aspects of the war. And of course, women are then uh, VADs, they're, they're part of the nursing corps and all of the others, uh, or they're part of the munitions factory. So in many other ways, women are, are part of the war effort. And then you have women like Sylvia Pankhurst in England, again, somebody else who's anti-war. And she comes over to Ireland in, in 1915 as part of her campaign to argue for equal pay for women engaged in war work because they're, they're basically cheap labour yeah. at this stage. And of course, the other reaction to the war in the North is, is the pacifist stance taken by the suffragette Margaret McCubrey, who'd been very active within Northern suffragist uh, circles but she becomes very passionate um, against the war and she gives really strong speeches um, as part of the the cooperative movement um, there's also a movement throughout um, britain um, that starts off with a rent strike in glasgow but it's a means of linking anti-war and working class women and margaret mccubrey gets involved in that um, by 1917 she's trying to organize anti-war meetings. She manages it in Bangor and has a very poor reception, but her, her, her speeches against war are fantastic mm. and, and, and I think were fairly well circulated at the time. Yeah. When World War I's finished, then 
you know, the next sort of big thing that we've um, been looking at in the last year is the representation of the People Act. The elections of 1918, the end of the election, what was the feminist response to the, the um, representation of the People Act? First of all, for different reasons, the representation of the People Act include women, but as an afterthought, and they don't want women to swamp the electorate, given so many men died in the trenches. So they put the age restriction on. So it's women over the age of 30, because they're an unknown quantity. They're not sure how women will vote. And there's also a property qualification. So it's not all women over the ages of 30. And ironically, it'll be not the young women who've been engaged in war work. They won't be eligible, most of them. They won't have the property qualification and they probably haven't got the age qualification either. So they're not even rewarding the ones. But in Ireland, we've also had the Easter Rising and you've had the proclamation, which starts off Irish men and Irish women. And it promises an Irish Republic elected by the franchise of all people. And it promises equal rights and equal opportunities. And Hanishi Skeffington talking about the proclamation says, it's the first time in history that men fighting for freedom voluntarily included women. And she makes the point that the American War of Independence and the French Revolution were male events. They didn't include women and how revolutionary Ireland was. So they make a distinction between, as she says, the proclamation which was so willing to include women and then, as the Irish citizen says, the British Parliament timidly opens its doors to women over the age of 30. So they're not saying, isn't this fantastic? Mm -hmm. They're basically saying it's a bit of a half-hearted measure. What happens then when they're talking about having women standing for election is another issue. A lot of women do want to stand for election, but Sinn Féin basically is looking at who took part in the rising, who was out, who was militarily active. And that seems to be a large part of their criterion in who gets chosen as candidate. Hannah She Skeffington wanted to be a candidate, was offered a seat in North Antrim, which is still not elected a nationalist even to this day. So she said she didn't want an unwinnable seat. Kathleen Clark, the widow of Tom Clark, wanted to be elected. Harry Bolan and Michael Collins got somebody else uh, in, in the seat that she wanted in Limerick. And there were other women as well. Um, so you end up having Constance Markiewicz as the candidate in Dublin and Winifred Carney as a candidate in East Belfast, both of whom were really important figures mm -hmm. in the rising. Was there a sense of disappointment of it's same old, same old type of thing once, you know, the, um, the 1919 elections coming on and all these men are getting um, chosen? What, what did that do to the, the suffrage movement then? There was disappointment, certainly, that women weren't chosen. But I think, but, but once um, Constance Markiewicz was chosen, there was a determination to make sure that she would be elected. You know, because it wasn't a done deal. And Cumann and the Irish Women's Franchise League come together because obviously she's in jail. She's not in a position to campaign on her own behalf. Uh, and so they mobilise on that and, and there's huge delight and, and she writes from jail, you know, a, a rallying letter hoping that she can make St. Patrick's a, a, a sort of central area for work for women. So she sees herself as being part of that movement as well as part of the, the wider nationalist movement. 
Um, and it's slightly different in Belfast. Winifred Carney is supported by Cumann Amman, by older nationalists like Alice Milligan, by um, Marie Johnson uh, from the Labour and, and suffrage movement, but she doesn't have wholehearted support from Sinn Féin. They obviously see it as an unwinnable seat and they're not going to put resources into yeah. it. So she is, and she has a, a different manifesto. She issues her own Workers' Republic manifesto. She would have liked to have stood for Labour if Labour had, had, had been putting forward candidates. So she has a really stirring uh, election manifesto talking about you know getting rid of the capitalist class and having a, a position of equality where nobody's ha has their labour sweated um, but she only gets 395 votes and it's very critical of the, the lack of support from the wider organisation. So Margaret you've a book a revised book coming out on Hannah Shee Scaffington can you tell us when that's that's due to come out? I first published a biography of Hannah in 1997 and this is very much an updated uh, book because there have been so many more um, of the She Skeffington papers uh, lodged in the National Library, uh, particularly their personal papers, letters between her and her son and her husband which I've been able to incorporate so the, and also there's so many more archives available so the book has grown um, extensively so uh, it'll be out in the autumn. Margaret, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you, Barry.